Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of December 16th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. As they used to say on Monty Python, and now for something entirely different. Different way of recording this week. Normally, TechBiter Worldwide is recorded with a desk microphone. This week I decided to try using a lavalier microphone. That's one of those little tiny microphones that you hook to your shirt. This is the first and maybe the last time TechBiter Worldwide is recorded using a lavalier microphone. Let me know what you think of it. And something a little bit different for this week's topic also, working when the power goes out. An online discussion list that I'm involved with recently received a question from someone who is located in an area where power outages are fairly common. She wrote, all along we've had a generator in place to run the well pump, furnace, refrigerator, and a few lights, which has worked fine during outages. We can run the computers off the generator. However, the power fluctuations make it too dangerous, so we only boot up for 5 to 10 minutes a day for email and weather updates. I've heard about line conditioners without knowing exactly what they are and how they work, or what to get, how much. I've also heard about mini-generators that serve household electronic use. I'm also thinking about getting a laptop with a really good battery, but how good are the batteries? Which option, which expense makes the most sense? Well, I had an answer to the question, although it turned out my answer wasn't the best answer. So let's start with my answer. The question is a really good one, particularly this time of year. One of the subscribers suggested working from a library, and that's an excellent choice if the library still has power. You can take your laptop there with or without AC power and use the library's system. But if the event is widespread, the library might not have power either. So I guess I would have to assume that you can survive for a few days without the Internet, and all you really need is the ability to use a computer for work that's already on the computer. I took that point of view because if the power outage is really widespread, then Internet service that's provided by a cable or Wi-Fi isn't going to be there. If you have dial-up service, it might work. Your phone will work, and your Internet connection, the dial-up connection, will work as long as the Internet service provider has some sort of backup power that keeps their connection to the Internet powered. And you probably can't depend on that being the case either. So, forgetting about the Internet, the simplest method to explain and implement would be to use the existing power generator. Those things do have significant power fluctuations. So, what you need in addition to that is some sort of uninterruptible power supply. That's advice that would plug into a wall outlet. A good UPS will provide 20 or 30 minutes worth of operating power for a desktop system. During that time, you'd get the generator going. The UPS unit could then plug into the generator. You'd need to check the specifications. It should be able to handle reasonable fluctuations in voltage and provide clean power to the computer. Uh, Use the UPS unit and the generator only for the essential gear. A printer, for example, is not essential and should not be plugged into a UPS unit ever, at least not a laser printer. If you have a dot matrix printer that you use for proofing, it won't cause a problem other than it'll use a lot of power. Lasers draw far too much current during startup to run on most UPS units. In fact, if you run a laser printer on a UPS unit, you'll probably void the warranty on both the UPS unit and the printer. 
The most power-efficient computer, of course, is going to be a notebook unit, but if you don't routinely use that as your primary computer, your work files are going to be on the desktop. You'll need to move those to the notebook computer somehow. If you have an external USB drive that you use to mirror working files from the desktop unit, you can simply take the USB drive and the notebook computer to some place that has power. That's pretty similar to what I did when I had a hardware problem recently. My work files had all been mirrored to an external drive. I plugged that drive into the laptop and was back in business in about five minutes. Many laptop computers do have space for a second battery. It usually takes the place of the CD or DVD device. Given the location of the person who'd asked the question, it might make sense to obtain that second battery for the laptop computer. When commercial power is out, you could use the computer in its most conservative mode, and with two batteries, you could expect to get at least 8 to 10 hours of operation out of a single charge. Another possible option, you could run the notebook computer or even a desktop system from your car. This can be more than a bit cumbersome, but you could use the car to charge a notebook computer's batteries. To run the laptop computer that needs AC, you'd need a power inverter. That's a device that plugs into the DC circuit in your car, creates a very small amount of AC power. That wouldn't be my first choice because it's pretty cumbersome. And then I provided a link to an article on inverters and another article on UPS units. If you'd like to read those, they're on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Another subscriber put that same question to her husband. He had spent his entire working life dealing with machines and electricity, wound up as a specialist in industrial process controls, installing, calibrating, and repairing them. He also worked as a straight electrician at various times. So here is somebody who really understands the process, the entire process, from the ground up. His name is Bill. He didn't want us to use his last name. He's a very private person. But he did allow me to use his recommendations. You'll find a rather long and detailed explanation on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Look for Build Your Own UPS. If you are at all interested in this topic, this is a good resource. Now here's an interesting question. We're going to be migrating soon from Comcast for our Internet service provider at home to Verizon. Our problem is what to do with emails that we want to save or port over to the Verizon server. We're going to have some overlap in service until we're sure everything is okay with the new system. Well, this is interesting. Anything you received, uh, and I'm assuming here a POP3 account, not IMAP or webmail of some sort, is going to stay right where it is, and it's already on your computer. When it comes to a change of address, any good Internet service provider should do that as a matter of course so that messages will follow you. In fact, very few of them will do that, so you'll need to take care of letting people know about your new address on your own. You should be able to use the same email program, just change the existing account or add an account. That was my beginning answer. But then there was a follow-up question. I'm pretty sure this is a webmail issue in that we log on to Comcast through a web browser, and messages are all in their respective folders, regardless of which computer I use. Eudora, Outlook, and such aren't being used in conjunction with this. Okay, slightly modified answer. This is, in fact, one of the great benefits of webmail. The mail is the same, regardless of which computer you see it from. It's also one of the primary disadvantages. There will be no way to transfer those files to the new provider. You could use, in the interim, Eudora, Outlook, or whatever application you prefer to download the files to a local machine. They would then be on only one machine, but you would have them. 
after you leave Comcast, Comcast is going to delete the files. So you need to get them on your computer. So given that, until you leave Comcast, you can simply set your new email application to leave messages on the server. That way everything will remain the same until you leave, and you'll have the advantage of having all your old mail on a local machine. You know, the past few weeks I've been looking at Windows, OS X, and Linux, probably more at Linux than any of the other operating systems. This week I thought I'd continue the look at operating systems and take a look at some of the Office applications, website editing applications, browsers, antivirus programs, photo editing, and such, that run on each of the platforms. And as as I did that this week, what began to emerge is a picture that appears to have a lot more points in common than differences as you move across the platforms. Now, this is not intended to be a complete and exhaustive list of all types of applications or even of applications within the various types. It's just designed to show that nearly any task you need to complete can be accomplished on any of the three major computing platforms. Now, you may find some tasks easier with a particular application on a specific platform, but other applications on other systems can still deliver similar results. Examples that I've given in the past, if you're working on video, you're doing professional video, then you want to be on a Mac. That's where the best software is for video. You're doing, for example, game design for computer games, you want to be on a Windows machine. You're doing web hosting, you want a Linux machine. But when you get away from those specialties, you need just editing or word processing, spreadsheets, then there are applications on all three platforms. So just very quickly, website editing, you can use Dreamweaver on Windows or Mac. There's an open source application called Enview, which is available on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And Amaya, which is available from the World Wide Web Consortium, is available for all platforms. How about word processing? Well, you've got a choice of Word for uh, Windows or Mac users. It's uh, still an older version of Word on the Mac, but a new version is on the way. And, of course, OpenOffice Writer is available across the platforms on all three. So you have, you have multiple people working on a project, and they're using different computers. The most compatible one out there right now is OpenOffice Writer. Spreadsheets? Excel, of course, on Windows and on Macs, but OpenOffice Calc on all three platforms. For database applications, it gets a little more complicated. Access is available on Windows machines. In Microsoft Office for the Mac, there is no database application, so there you'd be using FileMaker Pro. Or, if you want a cross-platform solution, OpenOffice Base will work on all three. Presentation systems, PowerPoint, Windows and Mac. If you're on a Linux machine or if you want full cross-platform compatibility, OpenOffice Presentation. When it comes to web browsers, you've got lots of choices on all the platforms. Firefox, available for all three. Opera, available for all three. Mozilla, available for all three. Internet Explorer, available on Windows. Safari, available on the Mac. And sort of on Windows, but I wouldn't. And there are various other browsers available on each of the platforms. When it comes to photo editing, you've got Photoshop available on Windows and Mac machines. Additionally, on Windows machines, you've got the the choice of Photo Paint or Paint Shop Pro. Over on Linux, you've got GIMP. Now, GIMP is functional, but it has a very obscure 
convoluted and hard-to-use interface. I have yet to master GIMP, and I have tried a few times. Email programs, you've got lots of choices there. My favorite on a Windows machine is the Bat. It's available only for Windows. Of course, you've got Eudora available on at least Windows and Mac. You've got Thunderbird that's available on all three platforms. And Linux users have a choice of evolution, which I found to be rather impressive. My full chart is available on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In nerdly news, if you haven't visited a library recently, now's the time to go. Or maybe now's the time to stay home and just connect to it. An article in the Washington Post this week described some changes at the Loudoun County Library, that's in Virginia, began offering online books to its patrons in 2000, put audiobooks online for downloading into an iPod in 2005, the article begins, It reached another digital milestone this week. Journalist Tracy Woodward wrote that it has become the first library system in Northern Virginia to offer My Library DV, a video-on-demand service that allows library card holders to download hundreds of hours of video. Well, all that got me to thinking just how much libraries have changed in the last ten years or so. The Worthington Library, when we moved here, was in a building not a lot bigger than the library in the small town where I grew up. In my hometown, we had one of those box-like Carnegie libraries, children's books in a room on the left of the main entrance, adults' books on the right, reference materials behind the librarian's desk. Not much there. The Worthington Library was a building with a lot of class and a lot of open space. Books were shelved on two levels, all along the outside walls. The center part of the building was open, two levels tall. Now, I don't remember at the time whether it was part of the Columbus and Franklin County Library System. I think it probably wasn't, because in the very early days of Internet ubiquity, I remember it being associated in some way with the Westerville Library. The Worthington Library moved to its present location, and the building was substantially larger 10 or 15 years ago. Then, the Worthington Library, which had by that time joined the Columbus and Franklin County system, built a large new library on Hard Road. Next, the library bought more property beside its main building in Worthington and essentially doubled the size of the building. Now, and for the next year or so, what I think of the new library, but many consider to be the old library, will be undergoing additional expansion and renovation. There simply is not enough room for everything that's needed. The Worthington Library is the 2007 Library of the Year. That's a national award. That's rather nice. It's open seven days a week during the school year, six days a week in the summer. The last time we were in New York City earlier this year, I made sure that Katie and Phyllis saw the inside of the New York Public Library's grand building on 42nd Street, and it is. Uh, if you visit New York, make sure you do visit the main library building on 42nd Street. It is a grand building. Petition drive was underway at that time in the library to convince the powers that be that the library should be open six days a week. What's up with a five-day library week? Why would you close the library on the weekend? Well, there's no streaming video from the libraries in central Ohio yet, but Worthington has a decent DVD selection. The Upper Arlington Library System has a much wider selection of videos. And Grandview Heights, that's the library known for a long time in the area for its AV collection, is probably a little behind the Upper Arlington Library but it is part of a system that reaches out into some of the outlying counties and sometimes has access to materials that aren't otherwise available. Oh, by the way, the libraries also have books, a lot of them. And yes, I do have three library cards in my wallet, 
and I love it. The top executives at Microsoft might be forgiven if they developed a bunker mentality these days. They have been battered by the European Union. Vista hasn't been adopted as quickly as they had hoped. Free online programs compete with Office. And now Opera is trying to get Microsoft to include more than just Internet Explorer with Windows. This week, Opera filed a complaint with the European Commission that says Microsoft is abusing its dominant position by tying Internet Explorer to the Windows operating system and by failing to follow accepted web standards. Opera says the Commission should compel Microsoft to give consumers a choice and to support open web standards in the Internet Explorer. Well, in my opinion, the most recent version of Internet Explorer is largely standards compliant. And anybody who wants to obtain Opera or Firefox or any other browser need only download it from the Internet. Opera's CEO says that Opera is a champion of open web standards and cross-platform innovation. Well, that certainly is true. Opera has a browser that runs on nearly every platform, and it was one of the earliest adherents to the standards set by the World Wide Web Consortium. Opera says the Commission should require Microsoft to unbundle Internet Explorer from Windows or to install other browsers on the desktop, and that the Commission should require Microsoft to follow fundamental and open standards accepted by the web authoring communities. Opera Software is a Norwegian company. Its browsers run on all types of computers, as well as many cell phones and portable media players. I can just imagine people at Microsoft running through the halls shouting, Incoming! Thanks for listening. This has been TechBinder Worldwide for the week of December 16th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com and you can send an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.